another sermon by Dr. Mike Proud. Uh, we introduced him last week, and I'm just going to have him come up and share the second part of this sermon series. Mike, would you come up? Well, it's in, indeed a blessing to be here with you again this week uh, to continue on the message series that we started last week. Um, what an exciting day, right, with the baptisms? That, that's very exciting, and especially for Sally and I get an opportunity to witness this because we've got a, a history with Aaron and her family, Connie and Dean, and their uh, Aaron's grandfather, Bill, was the pa my pastor, Sally's pastor, when we first started in ministry. And so uh, it, we, we go a long way back. It's very, very exciting. I want you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Kings chapter 9. So we're continuing a, a series that I introduced last week, um, which was when life doesn't turn out the way we planned. Well, I think we can all identify with that, right? All of us are in places, that's probably fair to say all of us, are in places that when we were kids or when we were in high school, we thought we'd be in a different place by the time we got to where we are. And, um, and so the Lord, but the Lord works in the midst of all of that. And aren't we grateful for that? That he, He's the one who is behind the scenes as I mentioned last week, that when we were looking at Joseph, uh, that, that uh, Leslie Windham said, when it doesn't seem like it, we realize that God is behind the scenes holding the strings. And that's a, that's a great word for us. And so this morning, we're actually going to continue this, and we're going to look at, at the, the life of Elijah in a, a particular season in his life, and have titled the message, when you feel like giving up. Ever been there? When you feel like giving up. We'll see how God works and orchestrates through this text. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 19, and we'll look this morning starting at verses 1 through 8. 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8. Verse 1 says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how... He had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under the juniper tree and behold, there was an angel touching him and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, 
because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come to this time and we look at this text, there is a place that all of us can kind of put ourselves in the story. All of us can kind of put ourselves in that time where we, as Elijah did, just felt like giving up, throwing our hands up, just saying, I've had enough. But Father, you are so gracious that, that you, though we are undeserving of your care and of your touch, you grant it to us. And so, Father, we pray that this morning that there will be words of encouragement as we look at this text. There will be words that will, that will give us stamina to move forward. That there'll be hope, Father, that we'll see in this and recognizing that no matter what we face, no matter what we experience, no matter where we go, that, Lord, you are always there. We are so grateful for that, Father. Thank you for your love for us. We pray, Lord, that you will instruct us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we fully investigate the text that I just read this morning, I want to recount for you some of the events that led up to this point. If you'll remember last week, if you were here, and you remember the, the account that we looked at in Joseph, though the text was, was incredibly valuable and spoke to us, once we understood the context leading up to those verses, it added greater uh, emphasis to those words. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at at the life of Elijah and the events that led up to this point. What I want you to think about, what I, and you've got notes in your, uh, in your bulletin, but what I want you to think about is, uh, and recount with me, is that there were five times, prior to the text that I just read, there were five times when the Lord miraculously moved in and through Elijah's life to bring about miraculous things. Five times that God demonstrated himself. It's actually in 1 Kings chapter 16 that the story begins. And it begins at a time when Israel had fallen in desperate times. Not desperate times economically, not desperate times militarily, but desperate times spiritually. You see, before Ahab becomes king, there's a long line of kings that led the people away from the Lord. They, they led the people away, and in fact, in many times, there are statements made of the kings prior to Ahab that they had done evil unlike any king before them. That was the heritage that Ahab inhabited. But more than that, Ahab took that and he ran with it and multiplied it. In fact, if we were to look at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, it tells us, that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than any of those that were before him. And so it seemed like there was this continuation of, oh yeah, that's what you did, watch this, I'll do even more. In fact, in verse 33 of chapter 16, it says, And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And I think that's a culmination statement. It's not that he did more than those kings that were before him. It was that he did more to seek evil than all of the kings combined before him. 
And so it gives you a picture of where Israel is. In chapter 17, verse 1, we see that the Lord brings Elijah onto the scene. And Elijah comes and confronts Ahab about the sin and the degradation of the city that he had brought about. In fact, he says that by the hand of the Lord, it will not rain in the land of Israel for three years. And so, this three-year time period becomes this drought, if you will, becomes the catalyst for the five events that God demonstrates himself in and through Elijah's life. The first is found in chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. Let me just encourage you. I'm, I'm going to speak to some verses here. Let me just encourage you to go home this afternoon and start in chapter one of chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 16 and read all the way through the end of 19. It is a fabulous account of, again, God's interaction in Elijah's life. So account one, what's the miraculous thing the Lord does? After, the, after Elijah's prompted to go and speak to Ahab, the Lord says to Elijah, go and hide yourself in the, by the brook Kareth. And here's the miraculous event, that the Lord is going to command ravens to feed Elijah. They come and bring him bread and meat in the morning. They bring him bread and meat in the evening. It's almost like the wandering with the, uh, where the Hebrews were wandering in the desert where they saw a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of cloud by night. It was that the presence of the Lord was continually reminded by, uh, to the people that he was there with them. And for Elijah, these ravens coming twice a day was a reminder of God's providence for him. But then the brook dries up because of the famine. And so here's Elijah wondering what's going to happen next. And the Lord commands him in verses 8 through 16 of chapter 17, the Lord commanded, go to the city of Zarephath, and there I've commanded a widow to take care of you. And though she only has a handful of flour and a few drops of oil, the Lord commands her to take care of her. In fact, when Elijah sees this woman, when he first comes into the city, she is collecting sticks. And he asks her for water. And then he asks her for a cake of bread. And she says, well, sir, I, I only have just a handful of flour and a few drops of oil. And I'm going home to take these sticks and to bake bread and that my son and I may eat, that we may die. And here's the second miracle. By the word of the Lord, Elijah tells this widow, for all of the days that it doesn't rain, your flour will never be depleted and your oil will never go dry and the Lord will take care of you. And so in this second account, the Lord takes care of Elijah through this widow. Starting in verses 17 through 24 of chapter 17, the widow's only son gets sick. In fact, the sickness is so grave that he dies. And the widow comes to him now and asks, I've done this on behalf of what the Lord has commanded me, and my son falls sick. Why has this happened to me? And Elijah takes the boy and takes him up into the room where he'd been staying, and three times calls out to the Lord, and the Lord in the third event, the third miraculous time God demonstrates himself, the boy's life is returned to him, and he returns the child to his mother. 
The next event after that is starting in chapter 18, that the Lord commands Elijah to go back to Ahab and to tell him, now it's going to rain. But before he does that, he commands that all of the people gather together, that, that Ahab meet him on Mount Carmel, and that he bring all of Israel in assembly together. And not only that, bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah pole and to assemble everybody onto the mountain. In chapter 18, verses 20 through 40, is this account of Mount Carmel. And some of you are familiar with this. You, you remember that on that time that the, Lord, that the Lord speaks to Elijah in the assembly of all these people, and Elisha lays out and says, we're going to determine this day who is God in this land. Now we're, going to, we're not going to hesitate between two opinions any longer. There will be evidence who is really God in this land. Who really you should worship and you should follow in this land. And so Elijah says to the 450 prophets of Baal, you select, bring an oxen, we brought two oxen, you select the one you want, you sacrifice it, you built an altar, you assemble it in your tradition, and then you call upon your gods. And the one God who consumes the offering will be recognized as the true God. And so the prophets of Baal do theirs. In the early morning, they prepare the oxen, they lay it out on the altar, they build the altar, and then they call upon the Lord, their, their God, they call upon Baal. And it says that from morning till noon, they danced and they cried and they called out to their God, and yet there was silence. And what becomes really some comedic relief, I think, as you read this, is Elijah's taunt of the prophets of Baal. Elisha taunts them, and he says, continue to cry. Maybe you should cry louder. Maybe your God is occupied or has gone aside. In the Hebrew, the term gone aside is euphemistic for using the bathroom. <laughs> Perhaps your God is busy in, in the porta potty right now, and he just can't come out, and he can't deal with that. And then he goes on, well, maybe you should cry aloud because he's on a journey and he can't hear you. And then finally he says, cry louder because perhaps he's asleep and he needs to be awakened. And of course, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah take that as their challenge. And from noon until the evening sacrifice, they cry all the more and they, they end up into a, a, a fit and they cut themselves thinking that somehow that's going to bring a response. And yet there's silence. And so now it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah reconstructs the altar of the Lord that was there. And then he puts 12 stones together, representative of the 12 nations of Israel. And then he assembles the wood and he arranges the oxen on the wood. And then he says to the people, We're gonna, I'm going to build a trough. And he builds a trough all the way around the altar. And then he says, get four pitchers of water and pour it over the top of the oxen. That's not enough. Get four pitchers more and pour it over the oxen. That, that, that's still not enough. 
get four more pitchers of water and pour it over the oxen, so much so that the water rolled over the oxen, saturated the wood, and filled the trough to overflow. And then as Elijah pulls the people together and says, now witness the work of your Lord. And he calls upon the Lord, and it says that the Lord brought fire from heaven that consumed It consumed the oxen, it consumed the wood, it consumed the dust, it lapped up all the water, and and God demonstrated himself in a magnificent way. So much so that the people fell down before the Lord and they said, the Lord, he is God. And three times, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they fell upon the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah and took them down into the valley and there Elijah slew all of them. A demonstration of God's work. And then, that was the fourth miraculous time. And the fifth one is that Elijah says to Ahab, head to Jezreel because I hear a storm approaching. And he bows down there on Carmel and he begins to pray and sends his his servant to the cliff to look out over the ocean and see, do you see anything? And he returns and says, I see nothing. Seven times he does that, but on the seventh time he sees what looks like a man's fist coming out of the ocean, a cloud that's forming. And he goes back to, to Ahab and he says to Ahab, you better leave now or you'll get caught in the storm. And the sky grows black and the rain clouds come. And all of that leads us to our text this morning. Those five times when the Lord demonstrated His his miraculous presence in Elijah's life leads us to this time where he stood against overwhelming odds in each one of those situations, and God came through for Elijah. But now we see Elijah in a strange sight. Our text doesn't show the mighty and courageous man who stood against the king or who stood against opposition. We see a man who seems to be cowering before the threats of the queen. It's a different sight, isn't it? Almost... uh, raises a question in our minds how is it that this man can see God do all of these things and then come to this place where he doesn't have enough faith to believe that God will care for him here God cared for him at every step of the way but now he seems to be questioning that think about all that the Lord had done through Elijah One would think that after Elijah would see all that, that there would be no problem in testing and trusting the Lord that would care for him beyond Jezebel's threats. But that doesn't seem to make any sense in the moment. In this moment, Elijah is caught in the moment. He's caught seeing only what his eyes can see. And faith seems to be lacking. Perhaps we must consider that there's another possibility than just a weakness of Elijah's flesh. But perhaps it is that the Lord is teaching not only Elisha something, but teaching us something. That life doesn't just consist in what our eyes can see. That life doesn't just consist in the threats that are around us or the noise that are around us. 
but that the Lord is in the midst of all of those things, even in the times when we don't think that's true, even in the times when we don't see evidence of that happening, God is there. And so I want us to look at, at this text in chapter 19, and I want us to look at four evidences that God is at work in all things, regardless of what our eyes show us. The first one I want us to look at is that the threats which come from opposition can be, in fact, overwhelming. If you've got your outline, you want to fill in the blank there. And you know the reason that I put blanks in there and words for you to fill in is so that you don't sleep on me? And so, so the word there is the threats, the threats of the Lord. The threats which come from opposition can be overwhelming. Listen, listen again to verses 1 and 2. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. By this time tomorrow. The text tells us at the end of chapter 18 that Ahab headed for Jezreel. That was his summer palace. And there he is, and he returns, and verse 1 of chapter 19 tells us that he relates all that had happened to his wife Jezebel. And the, prophet, uh, the prophets that sat at Jezebel's table now were gone, that Elijah had, had killed all of them. And Jezebel was going to retaliate and make sure that Elijah's meets the same fate as those prophets did that sat at her table. However, there's something very interesting that takes place in Jezebel's reaction or lack thereof reaction. And I want, I want to note two things that we see in the text. The first one is that Jezebel refuses to respond to the movement of God at Carmel. Isn't that interesting? I mean, she's not just hearing this from some passerby. She's hearing the words of her husband who was there on the mountain and witnessed these things firsthand. And yet it seems like there's nothing that moves her. The, the text indicates to us that Ahab told her about the sacrifices and how God miraculously came down and took them, about the mockings that Elijah gave to, uh, to Baal, about the silence of Baal. I think that's most astonishing at all. Here she had put her faith in this, in this God of the Sidonians in Baal, and yet Baal was silent in a challenge that came about. And how the people fell down and said, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. She's not moved by that. She's not, she doesn't even take an account of that. There's no indication that that had any effect on Jezebel other than anger for what Elijah had done. She was not awed by the very things that her husband saw. In fact, she doesn't even seem to be moved in any way. I wonder if, in this case, that there is a hardening of her heart by the Lord, much in the way that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Remember when the ten plagues came? And why was that? Why did the Lord harden his heart? It was so that this this confrontation between the Egyptian gods and God could, could take place, where at every one of those plagues, God demonstrated his superiority over the deities of the land. I wonder if there isn't a similar thing going on here as well, where Jezebel's heart was hardened 
that this confrontation would continue and God show His superiority. But I think there's, there's another piece here that the Lord could refine Elijah in this moment that would demonstrate just how he could be trusted. There's a second thing here. It says that, that he, Jezebel sent a messenger and not soldiers to speak to Elijah and give them the, this word. Now, doesn't that seem a little strange? If she really was wholeheartedly wanting to kill him, why wouldn't she send soldiers to capture him rather than a messenger to threaten him? Maybe it was that because the people had turned their hearts back to the Lord and they cried out, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, that she feared for her own life. That perhaps it was she felt that if she killed Elisha on the spot, that maybe it would be that they would turn on her. And there was a history of that in Israel as well. And so we see here that there's something that's taking place behind the scenes. I want to be perfectly clear here. I realize that there are real dangers at play here. That there are times when we face conflict that there are real consequences. But I'm trying to, to demonstrate this morning that while fear is a real thing that we face, it doesn't have to control us. It doesn't have to control us in what we face. What I'm hoping that we see from the text is that in almost every, that in every situation, regardless of how overwhelming it may be, God is in the midst of that. He's not left his post. He's not left his children. He's not on a journey. He's not asleep. He's there. And we need to trust in him. Folks, there's nowhere that we can go and there's no situation that we're in where, the, where threat comes to us that is so great that God doesn't have a plan. And what we as His people need to do is trust that to be true. I want us to look at the second thing that, that demonstrates for us that God is at work in all things. And, and it's verses 3 and 4 where the temptation to give up can be great. The temptation to give up can indeed be great. Look at verses 3 and 4. And he was afraid and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a, under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. We see in, in, the, in the, human, the drama of humanity, we see that, that despair has a grip on Elijah. That the despair is not only realized in his actions, but realized in his words. Elijah ran to Beersheba, which is in the southern part of Judah. And it says that he left his servant there, and then he went another day's journey. Perhaps another day even further south, thinking in his mind that I'm going to run away and get outside of the reach of Jezebel. Jezebel's the queen of Israel. So he traveled south, away from her, and even got beyond the borders of Judah, thinking, perhaps I'll be safe. So as we witness Elijah in his agony, we're left to ask, where's the Lord in this? Where's the Lord in the midst of His servant's despair? And the answer is, that He's right where He had always been. He's at Elijah's side. But how do we know that? 
How do we know that he's in the midst of, of, uh, of Elijah's despair? How do we know that he's there? It is The answer is because it is revealed for us in Elijah's prayer. Even though he is at the end of his rope, Elijah still cries out to the Lord in the midst of that time. I want you to think about some of the other Old Testament stories that you're familiar with. When Jonah is in the belly of the fish, what does he do in chapter 2? He cries out to the Lord. When Moses is in the cleft of the rock, what does he do? He calls out to the Lord. When Daniel is in the lion's den, what does he do? He calls out to the Lord. When David stands before Goliath, what does he do? He calls out to the Lord. Each of these and many more of this, the accounts of Scripture that you could, you could recall speak to overwhelming circumstances that people had been in and how they trusted the Lord right where He was at. Right where they were at. I want you to think about what prayer is. I think sometimes we think prayer is, is a, uh, an opportunity for us to inform God on what's going on in our lives. Right? Lord, this is happening. Lord, if you only knew the boss that I had, you, you would have more pity on me. It's like we, we, it's our time to, get, to impart information to the Lord. But that's not what prayer is. Prayer is for us a confession that we are over our skis. <laughs> That we can't work our way out of this. That we can't help ourselves in this. I used to use an illustration many times. I said, you know, if I needed $100, I don't ask my son. Who do I ask? This is participation. I ask the missus. Right? Because she controls the money. We go to the one we ask, we make the requests of the one that can answer us in our time of need, but it's also a time for building relationship. And the prayer that we see in Elijah crying out to the Lord is offered without pretense, without posturing. It's raw and it's genuine. And it's a level of dependence that God wants of all of His people in the midst of that. So where do we go and we're overwhelmed and we cannot see hope? We call upon the Lord for He is the one who holds hope in His hands. In the Lord, hopelessness. Hopelessness doesn't exist because God has the answers. That doesn't mean that the story always ends out happy, does it? It means that the Lord's working and doing something in our lives in the midst of that that He hasn't abandoned us, but that He's there. The third thing that we learn about God, uh, about God at work in all of things is verses 5-7. through seven. It's where God gives His strength when ours is gone. In these verses, it is where Elijah has gone and fallen asleep under the juniper tree and the angel wakes him up and says, Arise and eat. And he finds a cake that's baked and he finds a jug of water. And he gets up and he drinks and he eats and he lies back down. And the angel rousts him up the second time and says, eat and drink, for the journey is too great for you. And here it is that Elijah sees that he'd been operating in his own strength. Listen, there's nowhere in Scripture 
that it tells us that we are to accomplish God's work in our strength. God is the one who is working. God, all He demands of us is obedience. He's in charge of the results. He's in charge of working out those, those details. He's the one that will give us the strength and the ability to move on. And this becomes an illustration for us. This journey was too great for Elijah because Elijah had been running in his own strength and in his own ability and he's worn out. And the very fact that the angel was there and roused him two times is evidence that God was with him in the midst of this. That the Lord was there. And so for 40 days and 40 nights, it says, in the strength of the food that he received, that he ran to Mount Horeb. 40 days and 40 nights on that food, that's running in God's strength. That's not human strength. Human strength would have worn out. The point here is that the, the truth we are looking at in this series of messages, that, um, that God is working and moving in all of us. God provides His own strength and His own wisdom to help us accomplish His will. However, we struggle in the weakness of the flesh, but often it's because we look to our own selves for the answers as opposed to the Lord for the answers. And here, without God, even the smallest things can become overwhelming. But with the, the Lord, even the largest things are under His authority and His ability. The final point in this text that I want us to see is that God is at work even when we do not see it. Verse 8 tells us that. Again, tells us that he, he ate and drank and that He went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. It was here that no doubt that we've seen these verses how, how Elijah's worked how God's worked in Elijah's life, even though Elijah saw his opposition as unbearable and overwhelming. And my hope is that what we'll see is that even in the midst of our struggles, that the Lord is there, never leaving, never abandoning. If we were to take and look at this text and see, okay, he ran to Horeb, what happened there? we would find at the end of chapter 19, we would find that he went to Horeb and he went into a, into a cave and the Lord asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? It, you shouldn't be here. And Elijah, again, said, well, I'm the only one left. I've been faithful and now I'm the only one left and they're trying to take my life. And the text tells us that there was a great wind that came, a wind so strong that it began to shatter and dislodge the rocks of the mountain that he was in the cave. And then it says there was an earthquake that came, and then there was a fire that came, and then there was a gentle breeze. And one of my favorite, favorite passages is, and the Lord wasn't in the, the wind, and he wasn't in the earthquake, and he wasn't in the fire. Where was he? He was in the gentle breeze. And then he demonstrated to Elijah, he said, I want you to go, but just know this. There are 7,000 that have not bowed their knee. You're not the only one. And Elijah went forward. No matter what we face, no matter where we go, God is with us. No matter what we experience, we can move forward if we'll trust, trust in Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning.
we, as we finish this time. Father, we thank you for your truth. And Father, again, I, I'm just a guest here, and, and I don't know what people are going through. I don't know the struggles that they're facing personally. But Father, we do know that regardless of what that is, that you are there in the midst, that you're holding your children. Father, I can think back to my life and how, how salvation came to me was through an overwhelming experience. And it was in that experience, Father, that though it was difficult at the time, I would not trade it for the world because it was through that that you helped me to see my need for you. Father, I pray that if there's someone who is here this morning that's never given his or her life to Christ, that this would be a time, Father, where they will simply say, Lord, I, I can't do it on my own. I need help. That, Lord Jesus, you gave your life that you might take our punishment and that we might be set free. Father, for those that feel bound and trapped in in their lives, that, Lord, you, you show them that through Jesus that there is salvation. But, Father, maybe there's someone here, someone who just needs to be renewed in that understanding of your hope. I pray, Father, that, that that one would be encouraged. I pray all of us as your people would be encouraged in recognizing, Lord, that we're not alone no matter what we face. And you long to do great things through us. Father, be with us during this time. We, we take an opportunity to respond to what you've said. We pray this in Jesus' name.